You're listening to the Casual Mancatter on Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. G'day everyone and welcome to another edition of the Casual Mancatter on the, my podcast, Thoughts from a Metal Cavern. This is actually my second crack at this episode. I had a go at it yesterday and to be honest, I don't think I did a good enough job. So it, this is a re-recorded version. So anyone who actually got on and listened to the first version, you get two cracks at it. And of course, there's no one listening to this podcast, so it doesn't matter, does it? (laughs) Oh dear. Anyway, today we're going to have a quick look at the women's series between Australia and England, uh, India, sorry, which has just been completed up there at Metricon Stadium in uh, the Gold Coast. And not only look at a couple of the players, but also that old thing about winning the toss and sending people in. We've also got the fact that the Sheffield Shield is in a bit of a, a slump at the moment and uh, I think we've got some major problems, not only with pitch preparation, but the way Cricket Australia went about not organising this season properly, even though they've already had last season to sort this out. So we'll have a look at that. And also England have decided to come and tour Australia and they have selected a side to come and tour Australia and we'll have a little quick look at that and see just how the poms are lining up. All that and much, much less on today's edition of The Casual Mancatter, right here on Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Did any of you watch the women's series between Australia and India? Because it was some really terrific cricket. And I, as I've said before, I really like the format. I like that they play those three one days at the start. I like the test match in the middle and I like the three T20s at the end. And I think it's a terrific uh, way for, at this stage of their development, uh, getting women's cricket more involved and better series going on rather than just touring a country and playing, you know, whatever it is, a couple of one-dayers or a couple of T20s. It means they get every format and you get two points to win either the one-dayers or the T20s and you get four points if you win the test. Now, they do have to tweak that a little bit, that's obvious. But then whoever wins the most games wins the series and I think that's fantastic. Now, Australia won this series 11-5. It was a hell of a lot closer than that on the scorecard. There's no doubt about it. India were unfortunate. Australia were fortunate. And the rain didn't play into into India's hands at all. It probably helped Australia out every time it happened. And even the fact that Australia won this series, it shows a lot of the potential that India has and how much better they are going to get. Um, 
For Australia, let's look at the, if you look at the whole series, and we've spoken about this on a couple of episodes now, but Beth Mooney had to cover for Rachel Haynes for pretty much the whole series, and she did a fantastic job for Australia at the top of the order. Uh, she probably played the same sort of role that Rachel does. She didn't go out and try to smash everything to the boundary all the time. She took her time, she built her innings when she needed to, and then when she had the opportunity, she threw the bat. And she did that in the test as well. She did it in the one days that she was had to when Rachel Haynes was injured. So she did a fantastic job of covering that position that Rachel Haynes has generally played over the last three seasons. And isn't it great? That just shows the depth that Australia has, that they can have someone like Beth Mooney, who plays at the top of the order generally in T20s and for her um, big bash team. But for Australia, she bats down in the middle order. But on this occasion, when injury required her to go up and do the job, she went straight up there and did it and was just brilliant. The other person who was just fantastic was Talia McGrath, of course. Hasn't played a lot for Australia in the last three or four years. Came in as a youngster and didn't quite find a way to get into the team. And now she's coming to this series on the back of fantastic form, both at the um, the women's first class level, the one day level, and uh, in the big bash. And when she was required, she stood up, especially with the bat, and was just magnificent. Helped win two or three games by herself, not only with her batting, but her fielding was fantastic. She, Her bowling was really good. Uh, she mightn't have got as much success with the ball as she would have hoped, but overall, you would any other country, she would be first choice all-rounder, and yet for Australia, she's about the third or fourth. Uh, but she's really made her mark now, and she's going to be very hard to dislodge from that team now, you would think, for the upcoming Ashes series, which is happening in January. Uh, I think the other great thing about this series for Australia was that a lot of our young, fast-bowling talent was given the opportunity to make their mark. Uh, Annabelle Sutherland, uh, the two young girls we spoke about uh, in the who played in the one-days and the test match. But coming into these 220s, uh, Taylor Vlaemic, who made her return after injury, she was just fantastic. Came on and bowled fast, not as fast as the speed gun said. A couple of times she got clocked at 145. Pretty sure that was inaccurate. <laughs> but she was quick and she swung the ball. And I thought she was just brilliant in those 220 uh, games and over the last week. And so she's added her name now to, to the list of young fast bowlers who are looking to push their way into this Australian team. Now, once we get to the Ashes uh, in January, uh, I'm, I, at this stage we're assuming that... Uh, Jess Jonathan will be back. We're assuming that um, Megan Shute will be back. Uh, Elise Perry will be uh, better for the run than she's had with the ball in over these uh, this series. How are you going to fit the ball in this Australian team? <laughs> it's going to be something for the selectors to try and work out exactly how they're going to go. Now, in the, in the long run, the T20s, we probably had too many bowling options, and perhaps Meg Lanning was forced in her head to give everyone a bowl, which may have contributed at times for Australia letting India back into the game. And perhaps sometimes you've just got to say, well, if someone's bowling well, you bowl well, and unfortunately other players won't get their go. Anyway, it's, uh, for Australia, it was terrific. For India, though, just 
a terrific series, really, and one that I think is going to signal the ascent of their women's team to greatness. Now, they're going to lose a couple of their old timers, their old stages, uh, very soon, you would expect. Uh, Matali Raj is probably closing in on retirement, and also Jalan Goswami, who must be getting close as well. They've both been great servants for Indian cricket. But there are kids coming through who can do the job. Now, you've got to look at that opening pair of uh, Smriti Mandahar, who was just brilliant, the, the young left-hander, and, of course, Shafali Verma, who is a superstar in the making. Uh, but number three there in the T20s, uh, Jemima Rodriguez. I think it's Jemima. I'm not positive. Some They pronounce it a different way on TV occasionally, but I'm going with Jemima. That's how it's spelled. She was terrific in those T20s and, and looked to take the game to the Australians and did so successfully. So, and that's not only to speak of all the young Indian spinners who were terrific as well uh, in those 220s especially. They uh, forced Australia to change their tactics and most of the time they didn't work. It was just that Beth Mooney got her big broom out and just started sweeping everything. So for India, uh, despite losing this series, I think they've got a lot of good stuff to look back on uh, and they certainly have lost no face to Australia in this series. Uh, possibly the best part about this now is that we have, I think, seven or nine, I can't remember which, seven or nine of these young ladies are staying to play in the women's BBL, uh, which is going to be a great experience for them, and they're going to learn so much by playing with these terrific Australians in the women's BBL, as well as the uh, South Africans and New Zealanders who will be also a part of it. And I think you can safely say that once India pulls their finger out and gets a women's IPL up and running, and that must be very, very soon, and that they make Indian women's cricketers full-time professionals as well instead of the part-time sort of professionals they are now, then India are going to start dominating women's cricket the way they've dominated the men's game. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. So one further thing on this women's series, and, you know, generally I am wrong about a lot of things, even though I pretend to think I know a lot about it, but I'd really like to talk about Meg Lanning winning the toss and consistently sending the opposition into bat. Um, and, look, I know they have been successful with that. I mean, you don't win 26 one-day games in a row unless you are winning probably about half of those from batting first or second. But there's no doubt about it. In this series, Australia was very fortunate after winning the toss and letting India bat first. They should have lost that second ODI, as we spoke about last week. Uh, India got a terrific total that they you know, were given a, a good opportunity on a good wicket, and then it was only for those two waist-high no balls in the last over, of course, and one of them was you know, a bit 50-50 um, that allowed Australia to sneak home in that game. Then in the test match, Lanning won the toss and sent India into bat, and the openings, openers put on a 100 partnership, and India scored well over 350 to set up a terrific total, and 
even though there were some complaints and some people thinking they should have declared earlier and all this kind of stuff, the point was that they made the most of that wicket and then bowled Australia out uh, for just over 200. Now, if we hadn't lost a, a whole day due to rain, then Australia are probably going to be on the back foot there after a mistake at the toss. And I think that was a mistake, an absolute mistake, uh, that the captain should have learned from but didn't. And then we went into the first T20 game and she won the toss and sent India in again. And before the rain came, India were well on track to wake 180. Now, Australia might have felt they were in a position to chase anything down, but 180 in a T20 game, and especially a women's T20 game, against very good opposition, very good bowling, that was going to be really hard to chase down. And, and my guess is that Australia would have lost that game, which would have set the series right up because then it would have been all square with those two games left to go. So, honestly, um, I still think I look at that series and if Australia want to keep being successful in this women's game, and look, it's a personal choice. I understand that. And and the and the, the, the streak, the 26-game streak, shows that it was successful for Australia against the opposition they played at during that streak. But if we come to the Ashes and we continue to win tosses and decide to bowl first, then against a team like England, I think we're going to find that it's probably going to bite us in the ass. The start of this Sheffield Shield season has been a complete cock-up. I don't think there's any other way to put it. And heads should roll, but probably won't. So we've had COVID lockdowns throughout New South Wales now since the end of June. And Victoria have pretty much been struggling with this COVID again for most of this year. And they've had lockdowns you know, at different times during that period. So you would think that Cricket Australia, on the basis of what happened last year, knowing how COVID affected everything last year, if Cricket Australia had been on the ball, by the start of September, they should have had all of the, te- all of the first-class squads from each state in one state, isolated, doing their 14 days quarantine, whether it was in South Australia, whether it was in Western Australia, whether it was in Tasmania, whether it was in Queensland, somewhere. They should have all been there so that by the middle of September, they should have been starting to play the Sheffield Shield season and then incorporating the Marsh One Day Cup in that as well. Because all six teams would have been together, you could have played it on different fields and we'd be where we are now at least, you know, let's say four weeks later, and we would have had, each team would have played a couple of Shield games each. They would have played a couple of March One Day games each. Our players would be being warmed up and ready to go for possible international games. However, that's not what happened. What happened instead was Cricket Australia scheduled two Shield games, one in South Australia and one in Queensland. The one in South Australia went ahead, and as we all know, that was ended in a dreadful, boring draw. The one in Queensland got to within a gu- an hour of the game starting, and then Tasmania had to leave to go home because of a 
because two people became positive with COVID in Queensland. So that game was rescheduled a week later to be played in South Australia as both teams still were able to cross that border. And then that was played this week and that game ended in a boring draw. And as we stand now, there are two further Shield games that have been scheduled. One in South Australia at the Adelaide Oval and one in Western Australia at uh, the Wacker. And that involves those four states. But it does not involve New South Wales and Victoria because they have been refused entry to South Australia to quarantine, to start quarantining, to start playing Shield cricket. So now that they're not allowed to go to South Australia, and obviously all the other teams are in South Australia or Western Australia, New South Wales and Victoria have been forced to play each other in a series of games, a series of first-class games, some are saying up to three possibly before the Ashes starts, and also three one-day games, or possibly up to three against each other. So we have a Sheffield Shield season that is completely split in two and currently only has two games played and two further games scheduled. There's been no uh, actual word as to whether the games between New South Wales and Victoria will be considered a part of the Sheffield Shield or whether they'll just be considered first-class fixtures or whether they'll just be considered practice matches. I mean, we don't know because nothing's been said Nothing's been actually organised. Nothing's been actually announced. No dates for those games have actually come out. So the question that needs to be asked in regards to that is, is the Sheffield Shield actually going to go ahead this year? Are we going to have a Sheffield Shield season? I mean, this hasn't... It's not, not since the Second World War have we not had a, second, a Sheffield Shield season. But the way we're going, if this is all we can get, if this is all we can get those four teams over there and they've played two or three games before, say, the first test starts, and New South Wales and Victoria play two or three games between each other, then what are the chances of being able to organise enough games at the back end of the season, in February, March and April, to constitute a Sheffield Shield season? I mean, the end of last season was just a schmozzle, an absolute schmozzle. They were all thrown in together. We have champions for some reason, but not everyone played each other twice. Uh, it was done on averages. New South Wales won the one-day cup. Queensland won the Sheffield Shield. And that was it. But who remembers it? Who got to go see it? No one. And now we're in this same position again where it's just so disorganised that we can't get anything done properly. There is a massive problem there. And Cricket Australia are the only ones who can be blamed for this because they didn't have the foresight to see what was happening in New South Wales and Victoria and say, right, we need to do something about this now. We need to get these players out to one place, quarantine, so they can play cricket against each other so we can get this season going. It's another cock-up at the top level of Cricket Australia. And, you know, honestly, if you were in England and you were watching the way that, you know, this organisation of the Sheffield Shield and the Marsh Cup had gone so far, would you come to Australia? thinking that everything's going to be okay for the Ashes? Would you trust Cricket Australia to be able to say, yeah, we've got everything under on, on hand, we can get this season going, you'll have no problems once you get out here? To be honest, if you looked at the way this organisation has been going in regards to this situation, if you were England, you'd be thinking, well, let's just stay at home. Oh, 
just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. So there have been two Sheffield Shield games, and they've both been atrocious, really, for anyone who's watched any of it, and you've been able to watch it through the Cricket Australia site. The first game was called off in a draw when uh, we had Western Australia and South Australia playing against each other, and both scored 400-odd, and then you know Western Australia was six for 200 again, and then we just... Or six for three hundred, I think it was, and so that was called off as a draw, and no one looked like getting wickets on it. And this week, Queensland have been playing Tasmania, and Tasmania batted first and batted forever to make the number of runs that they made well into the five hundreds, and then Queensland declared at five for three fifty in the hope of getting a result out of the game late on the third day, and Tasmania looked at the wicket and so distrusted their ability to bowl out Queensland for any sort of total that they just decided to bat on, and that's what they did. They batted and batted and batted. Their, their night watchman, who's the young debutant, um, he actually scored, I think it was one run off 60 or 70 balls, which was the slowest innings that had been played anywhere in the Sheffield Shield since Tim May's innings in the 1994-95 Sheffield Shield final when they were batting for a draw on the last day to win the Shield. But this is the first match of the season for both these teams, and yet they just decided to bat through. So we got to the point where halfway through the second session of the fourth day, we had Usman Khawaja and Joe Burns bowling overs because what was there to do? The bowlers, other bowlers couldn't get wickets, they were trying to set it up to see, you know, give Tasmania a bit of a hit and a giggle, and Tasmania just still played four defensives. So the game was called off before T on the final day. They didn't even play into the final session. That's how useless this pitch was and, and the way the game had gone. Now, there's been plenty of discussion about, firstly, why did, why did they call the game off so early that no matter what whether it was going to be a result or not, in a game of cricket, you should be playing to the half hour before stumps. Now, that's probably fair enough. But I guess if you're Usman Khawaja and you're looking at the way the game was going and the fact that Tasmania had no desire to look for a result, then why would you bother playing another two hours just to give other guys batting practice and then maybe giving all your bowlers a bowl, maybe giving Jimmy Pearson a bowl as well? That's a terrible situation, and it's it's... Really disappointing for uh, Cricket South Australia, I would suggest, for the guys who've done the wicket down there at Karen Rolt Noval. Even last season it showed that the wicket down there was just far too flat. There didn't seem to be anything in it. The only reason I suppose you could come back at is that New South Wales got bowled out there for 60-odd last year and still went on to win the game, uh, (laughs) which was an amazing game of cricket. But you shouldn't be having... Shield games, which are only four days long, played on wickets where teams can just keep getting 400, 500, 600. And it's not as if there weren't good bowlers in that game, you know, test bowlers playing in these two games, but they just couldn't get enough out of the wicket to cause the batsmen any problems. So that doesn't help our players, either batsmen or bowlers, in any way, shape or form either. And is who's going to take the blame for that? 
surely once again, Cricket Australia have to be held accountable for the situation that they have put this Sheffield Shield season in. So after what feels like months, but has basically been a couple of weeks of toing and froing between uh, the ECB, English players, uh, Cricket Australia, Tim Payne, uh, Michael Vaughan, lots of other commentators, England have uh, named their squad to come to Australia to play in the men's ashes in a couple of months' time. And all have agreed to come. So after all this toing and froing, where the, there were a number of players that came out who said that they were uh, not willing to tour unless certain conditions were met in regards to families touring and uh, the bubble situation, all that kind of stuff. It appears that all of those players who were first choice players have agreed to actually tour. And isn't that wonderful that uh, <laughs> we've gotten to this point after all this crap going on? And this should have all been sorted again long ago. And it's not just Cricket Australia in this instance, but certainly uh, the ECB made noises that were unnecessary, certainly given that they pulled out of a four-day tour to Pakistan. Uh, I think they uh, probably needed to find try a way to save face in regards to that. So anyway, coming to Australia and the touring squad is as you would expect uh, there is no Ben Stokes, uh, despite the fact some parts of the media are trying to say that, oh, perhaps he could turn up at Christmas or later on. You would think if Ben Stokes was going to tour that he would be named in this squad already. So it would appear that he's not coming. And there's no Joffre Archer, of course, and there's no Ollie Stone, both through injury and both have been expected for some time that they would not tour because of their injuries. And that's a great loss for England, all three of those. And... I guess what we're going to see is pretty much what we saw during the English summer. We're going to see a team where the bowling, the, the, the seam bowling unit is a good one and has the ability to do well. Now, whether they can do the same with the Kookaburra ball out here as they've been able to do with the Dukes ball in England is a question that is yet to be answered. But at least they have the basic elements uh, and skills to do well in Australia and in that regards I'm talking about Broad and Anderson who have been here a number of times and at the ages of 60 and 62 comparatively they must be doing okay. Uh, Mark Wood is a good inclusion for Australia now whether he is able to stay fit long enough to to be a real uh, consideration for the tour that will be interesting and how he's managed Uh, I think they all thought he was going to be managed this uh, summer in England and it just seemed to me they just kept throwing in the ball because they had no other options. Ollie Robinson's made a great start to his test career. He looks a handy bloke. Uh, I saw him, he played at North Dalton Oval with England Lions 18 months ago and he looked like he could be a really good bowler in Australia. Did well with the Kookaburra ball on those days. So he's going to be you would think, in that test team come uh, November, December. And Craig Overton, of course, is another of the fast bowlers who has been here before and has done well here before. So the fast bowling cartel for England will be fine. Uh, 
the spinners still their problem. Now, it's interesting that uh, during the summer they barely played a spinner and then they eventually went back to Moen Alley. And Moen Alley is now retired from Test Cricket, so they've gone back to the same guys that they had before, which was Don Bess and Jack Leach. Now, both finger spinners, we'll see how they go out. You see who gets the call to do the job, I guess. Um, you would expect that one of them would have to get a job uh, as a spin bowler, uh, during the summer in England, of course, at times uh, they just went with Joe Root to do the job. Now, in Australia, Joe Root's not going to be able to do that job, you would think. But they've got to find a way then to balance their team, I guess, and that would mean probably playing a batsman short. There's no Sam Curran. He's also injured, so they can't utilise him as a fourth seamer come number seven batsman. So if they're going to play with just the five batsmen and a keeper and then five bowlers, then they are going to end up batting short. Of course, if they pick six batsmen, it mightn't make much difference because their batsmen haven't been making much of a of a show of things in recent times anyway. And the only good news for England in that respect, I guess, is the fact that uh, David Milan has been selected. Uh, he was selected late in the English summer again to make his comeback. He was excellent out here the last time he toured. Uh, made a fantastic century over there in Perth uh, and always looked like he was going to be the one Englishman who was going to push on. And then within, I think it was six to eight months, he was dropped from the team and hasn't been seen in a test team since. So that's good news for England. They've still got to work out their opening batsman. Uh, Joe Root won't bat at three because he refuses to, so he'll bat at four. I guess Milan will bat at three and Root at four. Ollie Pope is out here again. Now, whether he succeeds in Australia or not will be interesting to see. Uh, they've got Bearstow and Butler, who will both be either a keeper or a batsman. You can only assume that both will be picked in the team, but who knows with the balance that they want to have. A lot of pressure, obviously, on Joe Root, a second-time captain to Australia. Uh, he's been scoring a mountain of runs of recent times and perhaps he's due to fail, and that would be the worst place in the world for England for him to fail would be on this Ashes tour. However, 17-man squad, five tests at this stage, you know, the the way that they set out is to, is to play Brisbane first, which is always tough for England, then the pink ball second test in Adelaide, uh, and then they'll go to Melbourne and Sydney and then Perth for the final test. Now, whether that stays that way... We won't know till a bit later on, um, but at least the tour squad's been selected and we can spend the next two months now talking about can England bring home the Ashes or will Australia and their dodgy batting uh, be able to survive and retain the Ashes once again. All right, that's enough for me this week, I think. Um, thank you for tuning in again, and I hope you'll be back for the next episode of Thoughts from the Middle Cabin. Got it! Yes! Oh, the thick outside edge. Tell your story, walking pal. Straight right on top of you. I love them all. I want to book them. Get them up here. You have been listening to a Metal Cabin production.